You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Travis Watts, an exceptional guest and the director of uh, director of investor relation in Ashford, Ashcroft Capital. Focus on coaching and multifamily business. How are you, Travis? Hey, Adam, I'm doing great. I appreciate the invite. Thank you so much for being us with us today, and I appreciate you taking the time. You bet. Thank you. So your background is super impressive, uh, starting as a single family investor in Colorado and then moving to large multifamily and then coaching and focusing now on the passive investing. But I would like to start with beginnings. What was the beginnings for you as an investor? Sure. Yeah. I think that, um, well, there's a couple of ways I could tell this story, but, but my parents raised me very frugally. And so from childhood, I learned a lot about just saving money, right? Put your money in the bank, save for a rainy day, use the coupons, buy the off brand, don't buy things you don't need, don't go into debt, you know, all that, all that good stuff. But, you know, at a certain point, probably around 16, 17, 18, somewhere in that range, I got to thinking, even if I had a high income, let's say I had a nice solid job, I made $10,000 per month or something, I still got to pay for my living, I still got to pay taxes, I still got to pay, you know, insurance and bills and healthcare and, and all the rest. And even if I'm very frugal, and I'm very disciplined, and I'm an avid saver, I'm still my max potential with that outcome is saving maybe three or $4,000 per month, and I'm going to be capped right there for the rest of my life. And I thought, well, A, that doesn't seem very enjoyable. And two, I don't see that really building substantial wealth over time. Mm -hmm. So that started my journey into exploring the investing side of the coin, which I was never taught. And so that was done through mentors, that was done through books, you know, podcasts like this one. And I started to realize there really is no cap on your earning potential when you become an investor. You know, is it possible you make 10,000 a month with investments? Absolutely. What about 20? What about 50? What about 100? There's people making, you know, a million dollars a day in their businesses. So there really isn't a cap. And I thought that's a lot more inspiring to me. So I want to start that journey. So that was kind of the mindset in the humble beginnings. And the way I actually got started into real estate, to your point earlier um, in the intro, was single family homes. So, you know, call it what you will, you know, uh, dumb luck or just coincidental timing. But I was ready to start investing in 2009. The markets mm -hmm. were all still falling. Uh, that included real estate. Yeah. But I decided I wanted to try real estate because I was kind of captivated by passive income and cash flow and this concept that maybe one day I don't have to work for money, my money works for me. And so I, I got a roommate, I bought a little two bed, one bath townhome out in Fort Collins, Colorado, next to Colorado State University, a little college town kind mm -hmm. of. And I thought, you know, I just came out of college. So I thought, I, I know there's a lot of demand for people who want to live off campus, you know, independently like I did. Hmm. And so I rented that spare bedroom out for $600 per month. And my mortgage was $600 per month or 640 or something like that. So it was essentially living for free right outside of college. And so that got the wheels turning. 
And I ended up doing fix and flips and vacation rentals and mm -hmm. buy and hold single family and everything was active. And at first that was fun. And over about six and a half years, it, it, it grew to be a little bit old. <laughs> and so I was working a W-2 job, a lot of hours, 100 hours per week in the oil industry, just trying to, to make money so I could keep investing. And I burned out. You know, I just thought, I, I don't see how I'm ever going to get to 100 single family homes or whatever my goal was back then. I, you know, I'm not even 20% of the way there and I'm burned out. And so that prompted a whole new shift of perspective and mentorship. And I started learning about passive investing. I started learning about multifamily syndications, private placements, whatever you want to call them, and other vehicles that I invest in too today that just produce passive income where I'm not involved in the business at all. I'm just the guy saying, here's some money and then send me some residual checks every month. And that grew to be even a, you know a bigger expansion of of realizing what investing can do for people and so long story short <laughs> that's what i do today to your point i help educate in the space of being a passive investor which is what i do full-time now every single one of my investments is a hands-off investment i don't do anything actively not a gp not a house flipper i don't do any of that stuff uh at all so that kind of brings us through today and working with Ashcroft Capital to kind of get the word out. It's just a group I've invested with for many years. I've known Joe a long time and um, there, yeah, we, we do a lot of conferences and speaking gigs and educational content. So I love it. So what was the actual business motivation to switch to the passive investing like versus active because you've been on the both side yeah. of the coin, basically you've been yeah. active. Right. And then you focus now only on the passive. So what was the actual motivation? Yeah, yeah. The, my motivation was that I didn't like my W-2 job. I was working a job I, I quite frankly hated mm -hmm. and I needed a way out. And I didn't see a way out other than if I had enough passive income every month to where I didn't need that job, I didn't have to be reliant on it. I could then have the freedom or the flexibility to pursue other work that I actually did enjoy and did want to learn. So there's this, this saying, I forget who coined it, you know, but it's like, be, be a yes man until the day that you don't have to be. <laughs> and so that was kind of my story. You know, it was yeah. like always saying yes to money and like, you want to make a hundred dollars? Sure. You know, what do you need? And eventually it was like, you know, I really don't enjoy doing this stuff. I'd rather pursue, um, you know, my, my passion. So uh, long story short, I had these single family homes and I, I ran the numbers for the first time, you know, mm -hmm. essentially a net worth calculation. I was like, if I sold all of these properties and I paid realtor commissions and taxes and fees and, and everything, and I let the dust settle and mm -hmm. what am I left with in my bank account? And then what if I took that money and I put it into these passive deals one at a time and I diversified 50K here, 50K there times, you know, a bunch of deals how much passive income could I potentially have? And when I realized it was enough to leave that job, I was all in. <laughs> I didn't really have to think too hard about it. I was a little skeptical uh, because it was a new asset class I hadn't explored. So I did one deal. I let it set for about six months just to make sure it was a real thing and that it, it made sense and that I wasn't missing something. And then from there, um, it, it was real. <laughs> so I started diversifying and, and doing a whole lot more of those. So uh, what is your actual, your actual criteria on investing? Because I think, first of all, you mentioned that you were looking for a passive income so you can live on. 
Yeah. So uh, also the second point you mentioned is diversity to have different asset classes in yeah. your portfolio. So what is your focus right now when you, as, a, as a passive investor with Ashcroft uh, Capital, with sure. other uh, operators? And uh, I think you, you, more the focus I mean is going to be on uh, south of uh, US, like uh, Florida and all of this stable markets, mm-hmm. not the appreciated markets, unless mm-hmm. you disagree with me. Well, I think markets can change. Like I wouldn't have always said that Florida was a growth market, for example, at least not like Orlando, Jacksonville, Tampa in the past. I think it's becoming that as more and more people are now moving there. We're seeing big appreciation in markets like that uh, as compared to, say, a Memphis, Tennessee, which is notoriously known as a cash flow market and and things like that. Parts of Indiana, for example, or even Ohio. So um you know, but but yeah, your coastal markets have, have historically been your growth markets. You want to go invest in San Francisco or Manhattan. You're you're hopefully doing that for future appreciation, not cash flow, because it's awfully hard to cash flow in those markets. So I've always been inspired or motivated by this concept of buying something at a discount fixing it up, making it better, and now it has more worth. And and we don't even have to be talking about real estate. I mean, that could be like a vehicle. You know, I'm going to buy it from a mm-hmm. friend at a discount because whatever situation they're in, they need to offload this car. It needs some work. I go and fix it by myself or with some connections cheaply. And then now I have this running vehicle in good condition that's worth more than what I paid for it. And I love that concept. And so I apply that to real estate. And so what I invest in to answer your question is value add class B um, multifamily in the Mm -hmm. Sunbelt markets for the most part. I mean, there's exceptions to that. I've done some Colorado Springs and some Michigan and Arizona and well, Arizona Sunbelt, but you know, other (laughs) other markets will say, Uh, but in general, that's my bread and butter. That's what I've done for the past seven plus years is that model primarily about 80% of my capital has gone towards projects like that. And then 20% has been diversified outside of that completely into experimental things, into things like say cryptocurrency or self-storage or mobile home parks, or, um, you know, just, just, just different uh, ATM machines, first lien notes, stuff like that, publicly traded REITs. So ideally the things that I invest in have an appreciation component to them and have cash flow starting immediately right out of the gate. And the cash flow I use to live on and the appreciation I don't count on. And if it's there, it's there. And if it's not, it's not, whatever. And I just roll it over into more investments as things sell, if it happens to uh, come to fruition, you know, but uh, I, I'm, I'm very cognizant that, that you know, every asset class has market cycles and the next 10 years of multifamily isn't going to be the last 10 years. And there may come a day that that appreciation is much lower than what it was before. And so I'm a cash flow guy at the end of the day. If I can just clip a, a moderate, uh, modest cash flow coupon, I, I'm all good with that. So going back to the next point, it would be you as a passive investor, how you can select your operational partner? What mm-hmm. is the main points you're looking for when you're dealing with a GP or mm-hmm. a, like a operational partner to select? The biggest mistake that I made that I see a lot of other people make is starting with the deal. 
it's show me the deal. What's your deal? What are the returns on your deal? The deal, the deal, the deal. What market is it in? What unit size is it? What's the age of the property? I start now with my own goals. What am I trying to actually accomplish here in five years or 10 years, whatever the, the, the yeah. trajectory is? What makes sense as an investment to get me there? You know, everybody's different in that way. And again, back to a component of cash flow and a component of appreciation makes a lot of sense. Real estate makes a lot of sense because I've I've done it firsthand, actively first and now passively. It's an essential need of people. People need a place to live, safe, affordable workforce housing. You know, we don't always need um, you know, Netflix stock or Peloton bike stock or something. I mean, they're they're kind of a little more discretionary. So I'm not a big investor in things like that. So I start with my goals. Then I start with kind of the macro level uh, situation, like where are people moving to? Where are companies moving to? What are the landlord tenant laws in different places? What are the state taxes in different areas? And I'm just trying to get a, a, a big picture glimpse so that I can start identifying what markets make the most sense? You know, it's why I don't do a lot of investing in California or New York, and I do a lot more in Texas and Florida for these kinds of macro reasons. Then I let the GP, this is where I'm finally getting to vetting the GP to answer your question, who is investing in those markets in value add deals with class B properties, you know, doing whatever a, a fund model or individual deals, whatever, you know, your criteria would be. And then I start betting them. What is their track record and experience? Do I agree with their philosophy and big picture? You know, do they specialize in this niche or are they all over the place doing all kinds of different business models? I like to work with specialists. And uh, from there, it's uh, then I get to the deal. You know, the deal kind of comes last, in my opinion. And, you know, if you're working with a reputable firm with a track record and markets that you like that are growing and expanding, that are diversified, you've already got a lot of things going for you. <laughs> the last thing is hopefully they're doing a decent deal in that area and that you can just sort of ride the tides there, so to speak. So, uh, I try not to get caught up in analysis by paralysis. I made some big mistakes trying to get too far into the weeds early on and, and kind of disagree with assumptions and underwriting and saying, why is this line item that? And maybe this should be that, or they're overpaying for landscaping on this property. I'm not going to do the deal. And then in hindsight, I watched those deals go full cycle and I watched investors double their money. <laughs> and then, you know, I sat on the sidelines thinking that was too aggressive. And so, um, you know, my whole thing is, you know, if you're working with experts, let them do their job. You know, if you're going to be an investor in a stock, for example, uh, you know, Apple computers or whatever, let the CEO and the developers and the VPs just do their job. Don't try to nitpick them to death and think, you know, better than they know, because, you know, that's the whole point. You're a, you're a passive investor. So, But you as a passive investor, you are more sophisticated investor because what you're ex like explaining is to one analyze the market so that's what is this is basically the importance of coaching investor even if they are passive to understand their criteria to able to judge if they're gonna go with option number one or option number two because as you said uh, first of all analyzing the, the market analyzing your operational uh, partner understanding their niche and so on so uh yeah it's a really valid point 
so, I call so, it uh, just real quick on that note. It's a great point. I, I call it actively passive because it doesn't matter if you're going to be an actual investor, like a true professional investor in anything on this planet. You have to have some active component to that, right? If you if you're going to do the stock market, you can't just start throwing crap at the wall and seeing what works, right? Like mm. you need to read a book on stocks, you know, you need to 100%. listen to a few people. So that's the whole point. Get a foundation, listen to podcasts like yours, read a few books, maybe find a mentor who's been doing it a while, pick their brain and get the foundation laid and then start diving in. You know, you got to take action too. Of course, that's <laughs> maybe the most important thing, but. Let me ask you about, about something else about your partner. So mm -hmm. usually when you're dealing with really experienced uh, GPs, usually the return is less. When you're starting with a newbies, okay, the interest is higher, but the risk, yeah. the risk on the same time high. So mm -hmm. right now on this market, when you're dealing with GPs, with uh, the inflation, the appreciated market in different states, what yeah. is your criteria to, or your target return on investment per year? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is part of what I help educate other people on is things change. There was a time in our US history <laughs> that you could go down to your local bank, deposit your money and get a 10% annualized return right there, taking virtually no risk and having FDIC insurance on top of that. Pretty sweet deal. Times have changed. That's not how it works. <laughs> now you don't even get 1% in most cases. Yeah. So you have to adapt as an investor. You have to be able to pivot. You have to be able to realize that when I started doing these syndications in 2015, a lot of the deals were eight, nine, 10% cash flow right out of the gate, day one, and then onward and building up from there. Today, we're seeing four, five, 6% cash flow out of the gate on the same types of deals. That's because we have a lot more competition, a lot more money is flooded in. This has become a very popular sector. And so you have to adjust as an investor, not just because to your point, which you're right in a generalization, if, you, if you're working with someone experienced, they either have higher fees to justify that, to say, look, you know, we've done, we, we've taken 50 deals full cycle, you know, and here's our track record, it's phenomenal. So, you know, you can go work with Joe Schmo over there and, and maybe get a higher return, but he might lose your money too. So, or you could go with us, we're a more trusted, reputable brand. <laughs> That's just kind of how it works, unfortunately. Um, and it makes sense, right? I mean, if, if, if an investor is looking at two deals, a brand new operator who's never done a deal and, and someone who's done 50, they can't be equal return projections. I mean, why would you take the added risk? You know, so you're going to have to do something for those investors being the, the new guy. So you know? right now in, in your market, what is the current range of uh, return on investment yeah. for passive investors? Because usually yeah. you have different structures. <laughs> you can go with 30, 70 plus the preferred return, which is I'm going to uh, talk about, which is the guarantee yeah. as, a, as a passive investor. What is your negotiation to understand that, of course, this is not a guarantee return. This is Correct. basically your best effort or the general partner best effort to, to guarantee this um, return. Yeah, it's kind of it's an alignment of interest, right? It's the general partner saying, look, the <laughs> the first available positive cash flow that this thing produces 
we're giving 100% to you, the investor, before we start sharing in that, before we start taking our fees or dipping into the profits. So that's all it is. Now, if that deal goes south and doesn't perform, well, you're not going to get the preferred return because it just isn't there. You know, you can't create something out of nothing. So it's a great point. There's no guarantees in any investment, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, even putting your money in the bank. I mean, you know, the Great Depression <laughs> run on the banks and even FDIC has its limits. And, uh, you know, anyway, different conversation. But um, so to your point, so in my markets, I'm investing in, in class B value add multifamily between 200 and 600 unit in size of properties. Mm -hmm. These are sought after by a lot of institutional capital. So pension mm -hmm. funds and REITs and mutual funds and syndicators. So it's a very you know, uh, highly uh, compressed area, but uh, highly sought after. I'm seeing cash flow projections in the five, six, sometimes 7% range annualized in year number one, and then building up maybe to seven, eight in year number two, and then maybe eight, nine in year number three. Again, these are just projections, but this is what I'm seeing from a bunch of different operators. And I'm seeing a total return, which is IRR, internal rate of return, when you calculate cash flow and equity upside combined of between, I would say, 13 to 18 percent, somewhere, you know, kind of in that broad range. So, you know, again, past performance isn't indicative of, of future results. And these are just uh, projections. And this is not naming any one particular sponsor. This is just what I'm seeing as a limited partner in the space in 2022. And, you know, quite frankly, if those are achievable numbers, I'm still very happy with that. I mean, you look at what's happening to the stock market this year, you know, I'd rather have uh, a little more stable, consistent, less volatile, potentially double digit return over the next few years. But the same for Bitcoin. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's true. So, uh, so anyway, yeah, that's my broad take on it. I think the next one or the next question will be, as a passive investor, what is your strategy to deal with fund manager and syndicators? So what is your better approach is to have an actual, because as you mentioned, you're looking for track of record, which is going to be better with maybe a fund manager, but at the same time, you have syndicators with higher fees. So what is your strategy here if you're trying to choose between the two different uh, operators, fund manager or syndicators? Yeah, I like to go. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I like to, uh, first of all, I, I invest in all of that. So okay. uh, we, at, with that as a, as a broad disclaimer, not, you know, anti any, any one thing, there's a time and place for everything. And I'll, and I'll tell you a good example. Back in uh, March of 2020, when the stock market collapsed because of the pandemic and because of fear and uncertainty, everything got pulled down, including REITs, real estate investment trusts that were in the market. So these things, a lot of them were, were cash flowing a little bit lower than a syndication, so maybe four or 5%. Well, all of a sudden they went 40% off. So that cash flow went way up. And so mm -hmm. if you were to have bought, which I bought some, but you know, uh, story always goes never enough. And you know, then they recover in price. You you would have got a great cash flow because you bought literally at a forty percent discount. So that was an opportunistic play, you know. But in the private markets, there's different opportunities. You have to be, you know, strategically, you have to have an upper hand, you know, to get something like that. So 
anyway, all of that to be said, I like to go directly to the source. This is my, mm -hmm. you know, the more layers, the more middlemen, the more, you know, this person's evolved and it change hands to this person. And then there's a manager that, does, I, you know, with the REIT structures and stuff, some of them, mm -hmm. I'm turned off by that. So I like to go right to a GP who's directly doing their own deal who's, you know, doing their own capital raising the whole deal. That's just a personal preference. And, mm -hmm. um, but there's pros and cons to others. I work with, um, with a co-sponsor as well, and he co-raises for different groups. But the cool mm -hmm. thing, first of all, I like the guy a lot. We get along, we have great conversations. He's introduced me to a lot of great operators in the space that I never would have been introduced to that maybe I couldn't even go directly to if I had wanted to. So there's, there's pros and cons to all of this. But as far as the crowdfunding platforms and different things like that, I just prefer to go right to the syndicator themselves rather than using a, a middleman or a platform or a, or a fund manager, a fund of funds. Yeah, hundred percent. So, but if you are comparing uh, return-wise, what is going to be the better approach? Always a syndicator, in your uh, opinion? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it'll be deal specific. And someone on social media a few weeks ago sent me this um, Vanguard real estate fund and said, "I heard you on a podcast talk about syndications, but why wouldn't I just invest in this?" You know, and they sent me the the, the ticker symbol, and I said, "Well." few things. I mean, I'm not telling you what to do or not to do, but but here's a couple of things. Think about volatility is the biggest. Cash flow yield was about half of what you might expect in a syndication. And then the multiple layers of, of fees and not really knowing what exactly you're investing in. How many properties do they have? What are the breakdowns of each of those properties? You, you really don't know that stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're always buying and selling. And I've just learned from being in the private space that we're the group that's selling our deals to a lot of those mutual funds, you know, after we're finished. So we come in and buy it, we renovate, we make our 20, 30% return, whatever it is, we sell mm -hmm. it, they're the buyer. And so I wouldn't necessarily want to be on that side of the coin. <laughs> I'd rather be the group that came in and bought it off of them because it, it's got a lot of deferred maintenance and it's really old and it needs updates and it's below market rents. I'd rather be on that side of the coin, yeah. like I described earlier, and kind of riding that wave up and not buying it kind of at the top. But personal preference, man, you, you know, you do you. <laughs> so going uh, to this part of the, the coin, which is the fees, so how you as a passive investor assess the fees of the GPs, including like the profit split, uh, yeah. the acquisitions fees, the management fee. So mm -hmm. you, as you said, you have different operators, but how yeah. you manage to say, okay, this is the correct number. This is not, this is too much for sure. me. Sure. So generally speaking, generally, I mean, you've got three types of fees, kind of an acquisition fee up front for closing the property and finding it, doing the underwriting, raising the capital, doing the legal docs. That's kind of like a reimbursement and hopefully a little profit for the group for yeah. putting it together. You have an asset management fee, which is the ongoing fee they collect just to make sure the business plan is happening and in accordance to, to what they told investors. And then the back end should be the largest fee that the GP gets to collect. And it's if they meet or exceed their projections, they're going to share in those profits on the sale on the back end. So mm -hmm. a common split might be, let's say, 70-30. 70% of the back end profits go to the limited partners, 30% to the general partnership. You might see 80-20 split. You might see 50-50 split. You might see 60-40 split. Everyone's got a different way yeah. of doing their deal. What I, what I always look at is this, 
again, starting with my goals, does it match my goals and criteria? Is it in the market I wanna be in? Is this a trustworthy, reputable operator that I'm working with? If all these things check out, at the end of the day, and, and a lot of people may disagree with this, I look at just the net projections to investors. And if mm -hmm. I'm happy with that, I really could care less what the fees are. You mm -hmm. know, they could take 99% of the profits, but if I'm still getting an 18% IRR, all right, <laughs> you can have 99% of the profits because to me, that's a solid return as a passive investor. And I'm, yeah. I'm good with it myself. Uh, a lot of people, again, disagree or get greedy or think, you know, this group over here charges half of that, whatever, go with them. But, uh, yeah, that's I, I'm in a deal, by the way, it's not a real estate deal, different kind of structure. The GP takes a total of 66% of the total profit and yeah, leaves 33 to everybody else. I'm good with it because mm -hmm. that still is a double digit cash flow return that's paid out monthly to me. And, and that's I'm I'm a OK with it. I think the, the good numbers about uh, the IRR is about 13 to 17 percent in different markets so if you're achieving this as a passive investor you're you're good yeah yeah well you know if you could get any kind of consistent double digit return over time you're outperforming the stock market <laughs> you know there's, there's one simple way to look at it yeah yeah so my next question is uh, as a passive investor what you're looking for when you're dealing with a gp uh, on the side of communication and reporting? Mm -hmm. Personal preference, I like monthly distributions because I live on cash flow. And with monthly distributions usually comes monthly reporting. And the mm -hmm. reason I like that is I feel a little closer tied to my investment. I get to know what's going on month by month, how the occupancy is changing, what kinds of renovations are getting done, the financials. I don't have to wait a quarter. There's been a couple instances where I did quarterly deals. Mm -hmm. And so you wait three or four months and all of a sudden you get the update and it's like, okay, we're pausing distributions, you know, or whatever. Or it's like a tornado hit our property two months ago, forgot to tell you about that. And and I just, I'm not a fan of it. You know, I'm, I'm a mm -hmm. fan of, of not over the top communication. I don't need a weekly email or a daily email, but mm -hmm. I think monthly is a good frequency. I get a skim them again, actively passive, right? Takes a little bit of active involvement, but mm -hmm. I scroll through these things and, you know, 20 minutes or something and I'm good. You know, that, there's my monthly, you know, work. <laughs> quote unquote, to manage my portfolio. So what is your focus on the report when you're looking as a passive investor? What you're looking for? <clears throat> yeah, making sure that we're hitting the, the target projections. If we're mm -hmm. not, what's going on? Why is that happening? What's getting put in place to, you know, make that happen? Um, making sure that occupancy and collections are 90% or above in mm -hmm. most cases, you know, so you're still stabilized, you're still going to be in good shape. If things start dipping down into, you know, mid 80s, low 80s, then it's like, uh, you know, I, I need to know what's going on. Why is it that low? Is it just because we, we took over the property and there's a lot of turnover all of a sudden in month number one? Or is it that, you know, they're building a brand new uh, apartment building next door? And a lot of people mm. are choosing to rent there and not our place. You know, it's important to understand this stuff. And the, the reason I'm so macro level is because I accept that at the end of the day, it's really not in my control. So again, I could sit here and nitpick these monthly updates and make phone calls, but like, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, I made a bet. Some are going to outperform. Some are going to underperform. Some mm. are going to perform at expectations. And if I can just get that aggregate average, then, you know, I'm good. 
So what is your previous experience in, uh, in a situation when you had a sore discussion with your GP? What was the discussion? What was the outcome and how you approach the actual conversation with, with, with your GP when yeah. is the actual performance is not performing well? Yeah, it's a good question. So as a GP, is a good point. Anyone who's listening who may be active or, or an aspiring GP, my advice is give your investors a lot of information. Try to address every potential question in your updates, right? Again, that, that, that tornado example. If a tornado hit the property, if a fire happened, if a flood happened, tell your investors, not next week, not next month, not next quarter, tell them today and let them know what the plan of action is and what how it's getting resolved and what the impact is and how many units are down and what that might mean all this kind of stuff because all you're doing if you don't is you're setting up a whole line of emails and phone calls that are going to come flooding in on every single thing that that you don't address so yeah. what i do even from the beginning of vetting a deal before i invest i try to read all through the the ppm the operating agreement mm. the overview i listen to any webinars or you know recordings about the deal i try to make notes on every question that i might have and then anything that's not addressed those are those become my questions you know at the beginning of the deal it's like hey i heard you say blah 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 but i didn't hear you talk about the exit cap rate projection can you tell mm -hmm. me what you're you know as, assuming for that or you didn't talk about rising interest rates you know what's your thought process on that or what are you doing to help mitigate that risk i'll ask those kinds of questions and if it happens to be to your point the negative uh thing hopefully they addressed it fully in the email if they didn't it's just a normal conversation of just you know hey i realized there was a flood in that area and this you this this property was affected Tell me more about it. You know, how many units are down? What does that mean? Did you file the insurance claim? I mean, what's the damage going to be? How, what's the turnaround? Do you have contractors lined up to, to start working on it? You know, just a normal conversation. You know, things happen. We have to be realist that tornadoes and natural disasters and, and flooding and fires, they, they, they happen. So that's why, to me, that's why I diversify. Big fan of Florida, live in Florida. Don't like the hurricanes in Florida. Don't like the insurance in Florida, right? Don't like sinkholes in Florida. And yeah, so yeah. I own properties here, but I own properties in Texas. Don't like tornadoes in Texas. I don't like hail damage in Texas. So I have some that are in Georgia, you know, and so you get the point, diversify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think my next uh, question will be, um, what is your exit strategy uh, when you're looking to partner with a GP, uh, especially that uh, on the syndication business, we always go with a commitment between three to five, maybe seven years. Mm -hmm. So what you're looking for when you're uh, checking the opportunity to, to partner with any GP, especially on the PPM shareholder agreement and all of these structures. So what is your perfect approach to have clean exit, exit strategy from this project in case you have any other commitments? Yeah, I think the first thing for everyone to realize when you're a limited partner is, again, once you wire the funds, sign the docs, and close the property and you're underway, 
it's an illiquid investment. You have to accept that. Never put 50K into a deal if you think, hey, in three months, I might need that 50K back. This is not the right investment for you. <laughs> you know, that you might look into other things in, in the publicly traded markets or just stay in cash or something. Um, so with that said, I realized that it might be three years before I see that capital back. It might be five, it might be seven, it might be 10. I just don't know. But in my experience, I try to work with operators based on their track record who have said, we always underwrite for about five to seven years, but mm. we normally sell at year three, year four, something like that. And, and I kind of like that, you know, it's not a promise or a guarantee, but hopefully I, it's what I call velocity of capital, right? I like mm. getting my proceeds back as soon as possible, either through a refinance or a sale mm -hmm. so that I can put them back out there into more deals and I can keep levering up my cash flow. And so to me, the, the sweet spot is three to five years. I mean, that ideally in a perfect world, it would always be three to five years and I would get my money back plus any you know uh, appreciation that's there. And then I would you know put 50K in a deal, it would turn into a hundred, let's say, then I would take the hundred and I would diversify it. I'd do 50 in this deal and 50 in that deal. And then those five years later, then I would do four more deals you know, and diversify those. So that's just my personal take on it. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot of opinions out there, but that's how I do it. Um, my final question about uh, your criteria is, uh, who is your influential mentor who basically um, help you to have this shift from yeah. the passive to um, from the active to the passive part? I joined a, a an in person pre COVID. Well, it was back in 2015, so definitely pre COVID. Um, uh, in person real estate meetup group. It was out in Boulder, Colorado. Mm. Two gentlemen in their 60s, maybe early 70s. They had sold their businesses in the mid 1990s and all of a sudden kind of overnight unexpectedly came into a windfall of cash and became investors. And so they had made a lot of mistakes. They started putting their money all over the place and stock market and real estate and private placements and venture capital and startups and made a lot of money, lost a lot of money, learned a lot of lessons. And so by the time I had run into them, they had a lot of experience being a full time investor. And so I would ask them what's been the number one investment consistently that that you would kind of endorse you know as, as something to look into or learn about they were the ones that that turned me on to real estate private placements specifically in the multifamily sector mm -hmm. they've been doing this a very 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 long time they've probably done i don't know 150 of these deals as lps and okay. it was the first time i kind of had that light bulb moment you can actually be a full-time passive investor if you want to be, I mean, that that's an option out there. If you've got some capital to go put to work and you can, you know, offset your living expenses. So they were, they were my two mentors that got the ball rocking and rolling. The more I've been in the industry, the more I've attended conferences, the more I've listened to podcasts, I've ran into a whole lot more full-time LPs. You know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know of, of Jeremy Roll. He's a big, uh, you know, mm, LP yeah. out there that speaks out about being passive. Um, you know, Spencer Hillegas was that for a long time. I think now he's more active, but there's a lot of people, um, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and name drop everybody, but, but uh, you know, they, they became mentors of sorts too. So I'll, mm. I'll vet a deal myself all on my own time, make some bullet points. And then sometimes if I'm still a little unsure, I wanna get a second opinion, I leverage my network and I just say, hey, you know, 
let me send you this deal. These are my notes and my thoughts. Is there anything I'm missing or that you see differently? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's teamwork, you know, teamwork makes the dream work, right? hundred <laughs> uh, percent. For the people to follow your success on, on passive investing, what would be uh, the channels for, for them to follow you? Yeah, so I open up my time for free to people. You mentioned, you know, coaching. I don't do that per se, but I do, let's call it mentoring for free on 15-minute calls. So um, ashcroftcapital.com forward slash Travis is my calendar link. You can also find my calendar link on LinkedIn, Travis Watts, or Facebook, Instagram, Bigger Pockets. I put it out there to the world. I talk to all kinds of people week to week, not just about Ashcroft, but just about being a passive investor, accredited, non-accredited, newbie, you know, 75 year old, very experienced, sophisticated, you know, guy, gal. Um, so reach out, I'd love to, to help and connect. And if I can be a resource or point you in the right direction or answer some questions, happy to do that. Thanks a lot. That will be great. I think advice for all of the newbies to learn about how they take a decision and start to work as a passive investor. Again, thanks a lot for your time today. And we're really happy to bring you again to the show and appreciate it. Adam, thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening.